Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. We're just going to jump right in, all right? Let's do it. Have you ever experienced a sense of restlessness? Uh, Like you needed more purpose in your life, more meaning in your life, more something. You know, you, you weren't sure what it was, but it didn't feel like you had it. There's something more. You ever feel like that? Anybody ever feel like that? All right. Um, okay, two, two people. The rest of you are just nailing it. That's amazing. Really, really good. All right. I, I felt like that too. We're going to circle back to that idea, but I just, I wanted to plant that seed in our minds as we begin uh, this, this sermon this morning. We're in our series called Torah Together, and we're reading through the first five books of the Bible. Uh, And I say we are reading. uh, That's a bit of an assumption. I assume people are reading. I've heard some people uh, who are reading. Uh, But I want you to know, it's a little little funny, because a couple weeks ago, I said we had printed 225 of those little guidebooks for each daily reading. And I said, we're out, and it's amazing, and it's just incredible. Well, some of you felt guilty because you weren't writing in them, so you brought them back and said, well, I feel bad. Maybe somebody else needs this. And I did not give anyone a refund, but I do have a couple of extra books. If you're like, well, you know, better late than never, feel free. And I do have to have one more disclaimer about the books. This coming week, you're going to notice that the dates for the reading are off. Now, for some of you, you're like, I'm so far behind. It really doesn't matter anyway. But for some of you who are just like the, the, you know, the process type A people, you're going to be like, this is driving me bonkers because it's not all lined up. I mean, I'm telling you, I, my editors missed that. Uh, my publisher missed that, all of that. My editor and my publisher are me and Steve who looked over it for me. Um, so you'll notice that, but just, just do it. Just read it. You'll, you, you can do whatever dates you want. And I want you to know, some of you have fallen behind in the reading. You're, you're way behind. That is okay. That is totally fine. It's not a problem at all. Some of you um, are skipping sections because you're like, I, I can't pronounce these names. I don't need to know this stuff. Listen, that is okay. Here's what I want with this, what we, with what we're doing. It's really just two things, two things. Number one is we're reading. Like we're, we're into it, reading, that's great. And then the second thing is you're having conversations with people. Even if the conversation is like, what in the world is this? You're having conversations. I've had such good conversations with people about what's going on. Even just this week, it was so uh, meaningful and special to me. Uh, My oldest daughter, who's in Nashville, who was here when we started the thing, and she grabbed one of the books, and she's doing daily reading with us. She texted me this week, and she's like, it's so cool that in this description of the tabernacle, it's not just like there's one person building it. The whole community comes together, and you know, if if you're reading it, you've kind of gotten there. And I thought, that's such a good observation. The whole community is pitching in. But anyway, having these good conversations, even with children and other people, just it's just been good. A lot of the conversations have been like, especially recently, like, <laughs> what is this here for? Why is this in here? So if, even if you're not caught up, even if you have no idea what we're talking about, even if you don't know how to pronounce the, the book of Exodus, don't worry about it because we're going to try to draw you in and kind of get you where you need to be. You're not going to have to do a bunch of catching up. You're not going to feel like you're, you're treading water. Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, divides naturally into three chunks. That's the theological term, chunks. I don't know if you knew that. 
That's what we learned in Bible college. That's why we paid all that money. Three chunks. Now, if they were making movies of these chunks, they would make Exodus into a trilogy. So part one would be Escape from Egypt, and that's the story everybody loves. Everybody loves the story of Moses and the, the baby on the Nile and the burning bush and the plagues. Everybody loves that story. They get into that part of the story, but then the Hollywood writers and, and directors and producers would have produced a part two, and it would be something like Escape from Egypt, part two, the mountain of God. And this is when they come to the foot of the mountain. We talked about this last week. And God laid all these laws on them. And they were there for a year talking about, here's this law. And here's what you need to do in these circumstances. And this is what happens if an ox gores your neighbor's friend. And this is what happens if your donkey falls in a pit. And you're just reading through these. And you're like, this doesn't make for compelling reading. But I want to get through this. That was my New Year's resolution. So I'm going to do it. But that would be movie number two. And then today we're going to talk about the third part in this trilogy, and it would be something like Escape from Egypt, the Tabernacle. Now, I said that a lot more excited than a lot of you felt as you were reading about the Tabernacle. These are awesome pictures, by the way. This is AI. It can do some amazing things. I, I just typed in there, make me a movie poster about, about Exodus. Now, most people loved the first one, and then they thought the sequels were kind of tedious and unnecessary, maybe a money grab like they made The Hobbit into three movies. Come on, did you really need to do that? In our daily reading, if you're caught up or anywhere near caught up, you are reading a verbal or written description of engineering schematics in the Bible, recorded by God for time and eternity. It's not the most interesting thing in the world. Now, I don't know if it's okay for me as a guy who wants you to read, get up, to get up here and say, it's not the most interesting thing in the world. But I think part of our problem is we're not fully understanding why God would include this. And if, I think if we begin to understand what's going on and what's going on behind the scenes, it might get a little bit more interesting. There's essentially 10 chapters. And even this morning, somebody asked me like, hey, I felt like I was rereading some stuff. So if you've caught up, you've read, God tells Moses, do all these things. Finally, like finally, curtains of, made of finely woven goat hair and rings and crossbars and this long and this many cubits. And then you read that little section about the golden calf. And you're like, okay, well, this is interesting, a little scandalous, but it's pretty interesting. And then you got to another section where it kind of repeated itself or it felt like it was repeating itself. And what's happening is over here, God's saying, you need to do this exactly like this. And then over here, it's saying they did this exactly like this. But it's almost a repeat, almost word for word. Now, some of you are like reading through there and you just heard Ferris Bueller's teacher's voice in your head and you had to like, your eyes would glaze over. I totally get it. It's like reading the terms and conditions of a new iPhone. But I'm telling you, there's some fascinating stuff in there if we give it a little time to breathe. And I, I realize that some people have skipped it. I happen to have our church's reading data from version. So the app that you downloaded, they send me the data of people's engagement. And you notice as we get to the laws in the tabernacle here, it really dropped off. So, and it tells me who stopped reading, by the way, too. So you may be expecting a call from an elder later this week. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't have that data. But I'm assuming this is kind of what's going on for some of you. So to, to this morning, to get us all caught up, we're going to read all 10 chapters out loud together. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, get started. Just kidding. I want you to read, uh, notice the very first verse, the way that this starts, Exodus 25 Verses 8 and 9, this is God speaking to Moses. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, 
and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle. The tabernacle is just kind of a fancy word for this, this tent, this temple, but it was a portable temple. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then you get 10 chapters of finely woven curtains made of goat's hair. You get chapter after chapter of uh, this is how you need to do this and make sure this is inlaid and make sure the brazen altar looks like this and make sure the menorah looks like that. Now, before you skim over it, which I know we're tempted to do and, and I'm not, I don't blame you, but before you skim over it, there's some important stuff here. There's some drama behind the details. And I want to make a case for this part of Scripture and reading this part of Scripture and understand, understanding what God is trying to get at. Because some of you thought, hey, that's a lot of ink on the page. We could have put that to better use. Couldn't God have used that to describe how do you love your neighbor or what do you do in some of the difficult situations we find ourselves in the modern 21st uh, century? He could have used that for other stuff. But I think there's a case to be made for what he's doing here. So if you give me a chance, um, I hope to make that this morning. I want to say, or I want to explain what I think the tabernacle says about God and what I think the tabernacle, remember this tent of meeting, says about us. And so we're going to start with the first one, what the tabernacle says about God. If you can think back to a time in your life, maybe it was recent, maybe it was today, where you felt close to God. You felt close to God, and it could have been I don't know, taking a walk in nature. It could have been when your child was born. It could have been, um, you know, your, your wedding day. It could have been just prayer. It could have been worship where, where something, a, a verse of the song really spoke to you. Um, but you felt that because often we, we don't feel it or, or we, and we recognize that. We, we recognize that something feels different. There's these times where I feel close to the presence of God and there are these other times that I don't. And we try to figure out, like, how do I diagnose what's going on between those two things? And it's hard to describe this idea of being near God. And so maybe you can help me um, if you are willing just to shout out a word or two. But what words would you describe this feeling or the sense of being near God? What, when you've experienced that, what has that felt like? What's a word that, that, that would capture that? It could be broad or general, but what's a word that would... Peace. What else? What's over here? Trust. Love, comfort, joy. joy, what's that? Awoken. Awoken, all right, you feel like I'm aware, yeah, very, these are all really good, these, these are almost exactly the words that I wrote down thinking this is what I feel like, so that's kind of cool that we're all experiencing something similar when we feel that, but that's only half the story, and I think we're aware of that too. I want to get all, all uh, a little Twilight Zony, uh, and if you're too young, Black Mirror on you guys. Uh, because I think that we have to understand a little bit, uh, we have to get broad here. All, oh boy, all reality we experience is subject to time and space. And you're like, uh-oh, Patrick, <laughs> I don't have, <laughs> I don't know if we have this much time this morning. Einstein comes along and he said, um, actually, hold the phone. It looks like time is relative depending on a few factors. And, and you're, you, know, you learned that maybe in high school and you're like, ah, no, that doesn't make sense. How is time relative? Because I would definitely try to slow it down or speed it up depending on what's going on, especially <laughs> this class here or this sermon. But Einstein comes along and says, space and time are woven into one fabric of reality. And that fabric is impacted by things with large mass. 
And so gravitational pull can impact the fabric of time and space. If you've seen Interstellar, you, you still didn't get it, but you're kind of like, okay, I see what's, what's, what's going on there. Now, it's, it's a struggle to imagine this. But this, so it's a struggle to imagine, like, and this is how things, this is how they build rockets and send them, and space telescopes and Hubble. This is how they use the theory of relativity to do all that math, crazy wild stuff. But then scientists realize that that math doesn't work when things get really small, like at the quantum level. So some more really smart guys and says, well, actually, there's this other reality. We can hardly imagine the other, this reality. And then they're like, but there's also this reality. And this is what's crazy. I mean, you can Google this if you get bored. At very, 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 very tiny levels, what happens to these, these tiny particles depends on whether or not something is observing them. And some of you are like, I don't, you lost me, Patrick. What does this have to do with the Bible? What is going on? I'm just telling you, when we start to think about even how the world works, things get really beyond our brains really quickly. They get really big really quickly. And really smart people have spent a long time trying to figure this stuff out. And even when they try to break it down for us dummies, it's still pretty difficult to understand. There's all these realities that are hard for us to wrap our minds around. Now, and, and, and are real. Both are real. Francis Collins is a really smart person, led the Human Genome Project. I honestly, I was like, what is the Human Genome Project? I want to be able to explain it. Tried to read the Wikipedia page, and it didn't even make sense to me. I don't know what DNA stands for. That's not my field of expertise at all. But this guy's a smart guy. He happens to be one of relatively rare kind of public affirming believers in this realm. And he described God in a way that I thought was really profound. He, well, maybe didn't describe God. He says, if God is who he claims to be, then he is not explainable in natural terms. So as soon as we start to try to understand the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics and all that, and our brains start spinning, I think the same can be said when we try to grasp this infinite God who created the way the world works, even when it's beyond us. In other words, God is outside nature. He transcends physical reality. He's outside this space-time continuum that Einstein talked about. He is, God is the uncaused cause. He is, Roman, or Revelation chapter 1 says, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come. The beginning and the end of what, John? Correct, is John's answer. Who was and is and is to come? That doesn't even make grammatical sense. Yeah, but that's because God is beyond tense. He's beyond past, present, and future. He lives, his vocabulary doesn't require those things. God's name revealed earlier in Exodus is I am who I am. Who are you, God? I am. He is an infinite, unbelievable, overpowering, impossible to understand God. Now, think about this. This eternal being beyond the fabric of time and space and all matter is going to move in next door, what do you do? How do you create space for an infinite God? How do you give God an address? And the book of Exodus tells us, well, here's a way you can begin to scratch at the surface of that answer. Anytime 
in the Doherty household, we start cleaning the house, our children ask, who's coming over? <laughs> Anytime, no, no joke, not even exaggeration. So what do you do if God is stopping by? <laughs> Better run the vacuum real quick, hide the dirty laundry. Martha Stewart, what is the best table dressing for, for inviting an infinite deity to the table? What do you do? You, you just can't put an extra plate on the table. You can't spruce up the guest room. Now listen, God has been with his people. You read about it in the, in, in, in the Exodus. He's been with them. He's been with them through the Red Sea and the plagues. He's been revealing them, himself to them. He's been providing for them in the wilderness. But God is saying, I am coming in my fullness. You know, it's like when somebody gives you too much eye contact. You know what I mean? You like a little attention, but if they make too much eye contact, like if I'm preaching right now and I happen to look at one of you too much, you're like, I, I don't like that. I would rather you just kind of scan the audience. It's like too much attention. And here we are talking about an infinite God who wants to come and live among these people in his fullness. You can't just put a sheet on the couch and say, here you go, God. So when we read chapter after chapter of the tabernacle, we're reading about a nation trying to create space for this infinite being. And no wonder there's all these intricate details and all these, uh, these, these um, things to keep track of. It's his, it's his fullness. I was trying to think of a good illustration for, for the sense of being near raw power. Just something powerful. Uh, some people have told me, I don't know for personal experience, but people have told me like going to a, a NASCAR race is like that. And the car's coming by and just the engines of the cars and the rumble and the crowd, it feels powerful, right? I'll take your word for it. Probably not going to go to one of those things. I've been to several, been to, <laughs> I point, I've been in several earthquakes and uh, they, uh, they're pretty powerful. They leave you pretty shaken. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, I figured, figured that's how that would go. But they're pretty powerful. You're just like, wow, this thing that I generally, generally rely on to be the, 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 the solid surface of my existence is, not, is now moving. It's pretty powerful. But the most powerful thing that I think I've ever experienced, and this is going to be a little odd, is when I worked at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma, and we worked out on the field. We were replacing radar cable. And all day long, it's a training base. So all day long, these jets are taking off. Most of the jets are these little tiny, small jets. Not that big of a deal. But every once in a while, a big plane or, a, or a, like an F-16 would come in. And you would be a couple hundred feet away from these things. And it was just hard to describe. I, I've got a video. It's just not going to do it justice. But at least I want you to see the, what it looks like or maybe begins to sound like when this thing's trying to take off, if you'd play that. Now, the speakers in the room won't do it justice. You can't feel it. Uh, you can't imagine. It's hard to imagine what that's like. I'm very curious what that, that chain that is holding that, pla that plane in place, that must be a really strong chain, and the guys around them. But I've been near, like I said, a couple hundred feet away, and it fe this is no joke. It's shaking your internal organs. It will rupture your appendix. It will really, it, I mean, it, you have hearing protection on, 
and it still sounds like it's incredibly loud and you want to cover your ears. It's unbelievable. Those planes, those F-16s, they burn three gallons of fuel per second. Per second? You thought you got bad gas mileage. <laughs> it's, it's hard to describe it, but you feel the sound. You just, it's, like, it's like vibrating your soul. It's so powerful. And so when I think of God and I think of his power, I can only conceive just of, of, of a minute part of it. But this is the God that, that spoke the universe into existence. And, 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 and there I am trying to imagine what it is like to be around that God. What is it like to make space for that God among this nation of nomadic people? Well, no wonder you got, you got line after line of, okay, here's what we need. Here's, what, here's how it's all going to look. Here's how everything, here's how the tent that we're going to build, build looks. Exodus chapter 40, verse 33. This is after the work is done. And it says, Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud that had been on Mount Sinai, the, the presence of God, covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Listen, it doesn't say God wouldn't let Moses in. It says that Moses couldn't get in because of the presence of God was somehow felt and tangible. And it's, it's hard to imagine what that would be like. Anybody remember uh, the old Metrodome? If you're, if you're old enough, you remember coming out of the old Metrodome? The roof of that thing was held up by 250,000 pounds of cubic air pressure. And so when you exited out the open doors, it would... It would push you out. You remember that? People, there, people, you know, you didn't have to fall over, but people did. Your hat would fall off. You know, you wouldn't, you know, it just, it was intense. It was this intense pressure. Well, imagine God's presence times a bazillion, and he's coming to live among his people. What would that be like? No wonder we get detail after detail after detail. This Francis Collins, the really smart Human Genome Project DNA guy, in that same interview, he went on to say uh, what I thought, again, was profound. God is not some distant concept, some ethereal, fuzzy entity. He wrote, I believe not just in God, but in a God, a powerful God, who wants to fellowship with me. That's pretty wild. How do you fellowship? How do you be in the presence of a being like that that is so other and so different? No wonder. I'm surprised it's only 10 chapters of exactly how to construct the tabernacle and not lots more because you're inviting God down to live in his fullness among you. All right, well, what does the tabernacle say about people, say about us? Our family is a uh, shower-at-night family. And I, good, I'm glad I heard an amen, because some people I've met, they're like, no, 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 I don't shower at night, I shower in the morning. And so you sleep in that grime all night, it's disgusting. I don't understand how you do it. I've met people who shower at morning and night, and that's just crazy too, I don't know why you do that. You're clean, just one or the other is totally fine. But anyway, because we're a shower at night family, uh, there can be a little bit of a traffic jam at the end of the day. We've got two bathrooms, and they both have showers, but nobody likes the other one, and everybody likes the, 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 the same one. So sometimes it can be a little bit of a scheduling snafu to get everybody in there. So I was getting ready to shower. I'm old. I like to go to bed early-ish, and I was getting ready to shower, and my, my child, my nameless child, said, hey, can I please go first? 
I'll be super quick, and for this child, super quick means about an hour, 90 minutes, something like that. Uh, and I'm sleepy already, and that's my first, that's my last stop before bed is this, this shower. And finally I say, okay, fine, yeah, you know, what is a dad going to do? They're not going to say, get in line. No, I say, sure. And then she, I mean, they go upstairs. <laughs> and about 10 seconds later, uh, they come back downstairs and they say, never mind, you can go first, dad. And I thought, oh, oh, she, she had a, they had a change of heart. <laughs> and they were like, oh, you know, my old dad, he really does need to get to bed. And I'm young and I, no problem. And I, well, thank you. That was very sweet. So I go into the bathroom and I discovered why there was a change of mind. There was a change of mind because my other child had decided to bathe the cat that evening. <laughs> and I happened to be gone. I came back to, it was pretty funny. He had put on layers of clothes because I don't know if you know this, but cats get homicidal if they're around water. They will, he had his little helmet out that he found. I mean, like, like oven mitts and stuff like that. He was ready to go. And so he bathed the cat, like, you know, made a little bit of water, put the cat in it. So the bathtub had about four inches of dirty cat water that was sitting in it. All kinds of, you know, hair, we got a long-haired cat, all kinds of gross stuff, right? So what I envisioned is that one of my children had be like, I want to take a shower first, looked at that bathroom and thought, never mind, I'm not going to do that, I'll let somebody else clean that up for me, and dad did, dad took care of it, and you know, it was all, it was all fine. I checked with her later, and she said that wasn't it at all, and she had no idea there was dirty cat water, and I'm not sure I believe her, and I don't know. So maybe she wasn't being generous. Maybe she was grossed out. Maybe she didn't want to have anything to do with the shower until someone had cleaned it up first. Now, if we're not careful, we will make the mistake of reading this section of the Bible that same way, as if God is grossed out by humans, and unless everything is just right, just perfect, he doesn't want to have anything to do with us. A lot of Christians Read this section of the Bible that way. I heard this taught over and over and over again growing up, and I don't think it's right at all. What they conclude is, when you read all this detail of the tabernacle, they conclude, well, God must be really particular. He must have to have everything just right. He must need everything just so, like, you know, people whose food can't touch on the plate, you know, people like that. How do you eat a burrito? It mystifies me. Or people who can't just relax on the couch and watch Netflix if they know somebody in their household squeezed the toothpaste from the middle. I mean, it's just, is God like that? Is he just so particular that he has to have everything just his way? And what they think when they read all this detail is they're thinking, oh, God can't be with us unless everything is just right. And if everything isn't just right, then zap, God's done. God's going to toast them. Because you read certain texts where it says, hey, if you don't do this or if you don't keep this, then you should be put to death. And that's the impression we get of God. God, they think he's uptight. They really want to get it right. And here's the real problem. And if I could just a little sidebar for a minute, the real problem with that is they're like, well, God was very uptight about the tabernacle and the laws. And we need to follow the pattern that he set out for us in the tabernacle and the laws. And then people begin to look for patterns and rules in scripture where they don't exist. 
And then they begin to hold other people to patterns and rules in Scripture where there really aren't any. And eventually those rules and those patterns can become obstacles to people finding God. It pushes people away from God. Now, am I suggesting that they should have cut corners building the tabernacle? No. God gave them specific instructions. They should have followed those instructions. And, And we're told that they did. But we shouldn't conclude that God is somehow fussy and uptight. I don't think that God is over particular. I think God is dangerous. I don't think God is fussy and it's like, ooh, I don't like anything under, the, under a 3,000 thread count on my sheets. No, I think God realizes my fullness, my holiness, my presence is dangerous. That F-16 jet fighter, that's not, it's not, it's not, Uh, fussy. It's not particular. It's dangerous. You give it wide berth. You wear ear protection because if you don't, you're in trouble just because of the nature of what it is. You steer clear because it's dangerous. And so why all this tedious detail? God is helping us understand who he is and making sure things are kept very careful so that people don't enter his presence, unable to enter his presence. He's a dangerous God. C.S. Lewis famously said that in the Chronicles of Narnia. He is good, but he is not safe. He is other. He is different. He is holy. Now, I want you to see, uh, uh, well, an example. You know, why all this tedious detail? Your, your house tends to communicate who you are. The pictures you hang up the wall, the books you have on the shelf, these are books I like to read, or these are books I like to make people think I like to read, or I I want a perfectly manicured lawn, or I I, I want decor that tells you about my life and my experiences and the trips and the people I love. God's tabernacle communicates about his character. Let me give you an example of this. Exodus chapter 28 uh, describes this in ornate detail, uh, what the priests are to wear. You may have read that, and you're just like... This is a lot, but it must have been the, the fanciest clothes in camp. It was really detailed about the, what the priests were supposed to wear in this white linen and this blue and woven and just really, really, really detailed. That's Exodus chapter 28. And so you're reading that and you're like, wow, these priests, they must have been walking around camp looking pretty good for this time and place. And then you read in the very next chapter, look at what it says, Exodus 29. And God says, and take some blood from the altar and some of the anointing oil, so blood and oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments, then he and his sons and their garments will be consecrated. Fine linen, blue, purple, embroidered just right. Somebody went to great detail to make these garments just perfect. And God says, yeah, take some blood and oil, fling it on those garments. What is that going to do? That's not coming out. They don't have tied back in the day. What are those garments going to look like? They're going to be spotted with blood. And it actually goes on to say, look at this, verse 29, Aaron's sacred garments will belong to his descendants so that they can be anointed and ordained in them for generation after generation. So you become the priest and you get to put on somebody's pretty fancy but blood covered garment. That would be pretty wild. So when you go to the tabernacle to worship God, the, the, the priest who greets you, he's splattered in blood. He's covered in blood. What would that make you think? This priest is supposed to be the best among us, and he is marred by the presence of 
shortcomings and sin and failure for generation after generation. Beautiful clothes covered in blood, a visible. See, when we sin, for the most part, we rarely get visible reminders of how our sin actually causes harm in the world. We don't get visible reminders of how the words we say hurt someone. We don't get that. But God is giving them a a clear example of the ways that their sin mars something that is perfect and beautiful. And if you'll notice, as you read the description of the tabernacle, time after time after time, you'll see, oh, there's symbolic meaning to each element of of the tabernacle. There's a story I've heard several times in sermons, and I'm sure it's not true, almost sure it's not true, likely more of a modern Aesop's fable kind of thing, but it's about a young uh, professional, he's working hard, living fast, drives a nice car, he's driving fast down this street, when out of nowhere, something hits the side of his car, he screeches to a stop, gets out, realizes that somebody's thrown a brick at his super nice car and just caved in the side of it. And there's a kid standing, like waving at him from a distance, and he knows clearly it's this kid that's done it, he starts yelling at him, what is wrong with you, why would you do that, I'm going to call the cops. And the kid is saying, I need help, I need help, I need help. And he invites this man over, and his brother has fallen off his wheelchair, and he's laying on the sidewalk, and the, the young boy says, nobody will stop and help me. And so he didn't know what to do, so I threw the brick just to get someone to stop and help me. And the young professional helps, they, you know, get everything they need to get done, and the kid goes on his way, and he goes back to his car, now marred by this giant dent, and he decides to leave it as a reminder to take it slow and pay attention because sometimes you miss things. Now, I don't think that story is true, but I think it's a good example of what God is trying to do with the tabernacle. He's trying to remind us of who he is and who we are. Every detail is a signal. This is what it might have looked like. The tabernacle laid out. You can see replicas of this some places. Every detail is a signal. Uh, the Bible uses the word shadow. It's a shadow of what was to come, the connection between God and man. All right. Oh, that's interesting, Patrick. Great. Thank you. That was fun. Interesting to hear about relativity on a Sunday morning. I don't know if I'm going to remember any of that, but you haven't answered the fundamental question that we approach this text with. What in the world are we supposed to do with this? Are we supposed to go build a tabernacle? Mm -mm. Don't do that. Well, knock yourself out. I don't care. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, these things, Paul writes, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is in Christ. Everything that you're reading has a way that it points toward Jesus. Every detail has a way that its fulfillment is found in Christ. They're a shadow of the reality. And some of you are like, why don't I just skip to the reality? Because sometimes we miss some of the details. We miss some of the beauty and the nuance. But what, what, what does the tabernacle have to do with Christ? This is so cool. So cool. John chapter 1, verse 14. We spent some time uh, a series ago, back in December, talking about this, where it says, The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Made his dwelling among us. Huh, interesting. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So fascinating. John is an incredible author, but he selects a very precise word. That, that phrase, made his dwelling, is one word in Greek, and it's not used very often. 
In fact, one of the few other places that you'll find it is in the Greek version of the Old Testament when it's talking about the tabernacle. Literally, John writes, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The glory of God, we saw it through Jesus, through the Christ. But, but, and it's, it's very specific how he writes that. But that's cool, okay, but wait, there's more. Look at what Colossians 2.9 says. Paul writes this, For in Christ the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. The fullness. Too much eye contact, too much attention. The fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Very interesting. That twilight zone beyond all space and time, F-16, jet engine, fullness of God is embodied in Christ. Hmm, very cool. But wait, there's more. The authors of Scripture have so much to say about this. Ephesians 3.19, Paul writes in a prayer. He says, I want you to know the love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know things you can't know. Okay, Paul. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That powerful F-16, beyond all time and space, jet engine, fullness, presence of God lives in Christ. And then we're told that fullness wants to dwell within us that we are the walking around tabernacles of Jesus Christ. That is wild. And you're like, I don't know that I feel like I have the presence of God in me. I'm going to take Paul's word for it here. I'm going to take John's word for it, that God in his fullness wants to live in us. That's wild. The story of the Bible is this, God with us. Eden, God with us. And what do humans do? We mess it up. And then the story of the tabernacle is God with us. And what do humans do? They mess it up. And then Solomon builds a temple, God with us. And what do humans do? They mess it up, get themselves exiled into other countries, and the temple is destroyed. And then Jesus comes, God with us. God just keeps coming back again and again and again to be with us to the point that he lives within us. You know that restlessness I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the sermon? We tend to try to satisfy that restlessness with with a relationship, with a person. To say, if I could find the right person to be with, that restlessness would go away. Or we tend to find it in a perfectly arranged life. If my children are well-behaved and successful, and if my lawn is well manicured, manicured, and when everybody comes over, they tell me how clean my house is, well, then that restlessness will dissipate and go away. Or if we somehow miraculously defy the natural aging process and people look at us and say, oh, you look so young. Or if we can somehow live to be 80 or 90 or 100, then somehow that sense of restlessness might dissipate and go away. Or if we can impress our classmates at our 30th high school reunion and they look at us and they say, wow, you look great. You don't look a day over when we graduated. Then somehow that restlessness will dissipate. Or if we're set financially for retirement by the time we're 40 and we can feel good and we just walk around feeling, knowing that we've got that security net taken care of, then that restlessness will dissipate. But you know that's not true because some of you have achieved those things and the restlessness didn't go away. 1,700 years ago, St. Augustine made an observation that I think is still true for us today. And he famously said, you, God, have made us 
for yourself. To be the place where his presence dwells. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Until God moves into the neighborhood, I think we're always going to be feeling that. We will feel restless until our hearts find rest in you. We're going to sing a song in closing called uh, Awesome God. You probably know the chorus. You may not know uh, every part of it. Go ahead, praise team, if you want to come up. Uh, but it just reminds us of this, this God who is awesome, who is beyond all time and space, who created that, who created every beautiful thing that you've ever experienced. That's this God. And this God says, I want to be in your life. That's mind-blowing. That's a responsibility. That's a privilege. We should walk around so excited that we get to be the tabernacle of a holy God. Let's stand together as we sing this.